Master Cave in Unpowered Trinity. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. If you'd like to share your story or find our socials, including Patreon, go to fostercarenation.com. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey with Jason and Amanda. And today we have a special guest for you. And normally where stories are all about foster care, but we talk about adoption a lot as well. And I was contacted by a woman, Melissa Corkum, who has a really interesting story. She talked about having transracial adoptees, being a transracial adoptee herself, which are both things in our world. She talked about you know, the adoption process and trauma. And I went, wow, this is a story that, that looks a lot like our life. And I bet a whole lot of other people's lives. We don't think about tr- the transracial part sometimes. And sometimes we forget about the fact that trauma changes us and we have to deal with things different and deal with kids different and all the pieces that that brings in. And Melissa has a whole bunch of knowledge for you guys today. So welcome to Melissa. Great to have you here. Well, Jason, that is quite the introduction and a pretty high bar you set, but I am thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, we, we just, um, we, we read your bio and your information and thought this sounds like a great place for people to learn. And that's what we're all about is in educating and inspiring people. So we are here to talk about that today. You know, this is not a popular thing to say, I'm certain, but one of the, the lines in there that really struck me was what do you do when you run out of compassion? And that sounds like kind of a, Man, when I read that, and I felt like I resonated with that a little bit in some ways, and I thought that makes me feel kind of dirty, almost like guilty or bad or something. But I mean, let's be honest: when you deal in trauma the way that we do, sometimes, sometimes that's a struggle. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, and I think that's one of the really important parts of this journey of our story is just being honest. You know, we absolutely love our kids. I would dive in front of a bus for any of them in a moment. But man, the day-to-day, and we're all human, right? Sometimes the day-to-day leaves us at the end of the day just saying, like, please go to bed. We're done. (laughs) Absolutely. We have a lot of those days. I think mom cannot take another second. Come on, please. I just need a break. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and and we've got, you know, uh, five kids at the moment. (laughs) Six kids. We have six kids in the house at the moment. And you can tell my brain is taxed already. And I work a job that right now, you know, with the pandemic stuff going on, we've slowed down to about 45 or 50 hours a week. Before that, sometimes it's 55 to 65 hours a week. And so I, I do that. And then we do this other stuff on the side. And I have all these kids on all these pieces. And man, it just wears on you sometimes. And, and I, when, when I read that, I thought, man, there are days when I know I should have more compassion. I know I should be paying more attention to that stuff. And some days you just don't have it in you. You're just worn out. And so I, I, that was an amazing question. So tell me, Melissa, what do I do when I run out of compassion besides go to bed? Yeah. Well, Jason, even before that, you know, the first comment you made that is something that we have heard over and over again from other families is I read that I resonated with it and then I felt guilty about it. And so I think even before we talk about kind of what we do about it, we kind of have to wrap our mind around it and kind of make peace with it. And I co-host a 
show called The Adoption Connection with a friend. And one of the things that we stumbled upon as we were starting to serve foster and adoptive families was this idea of something called blocked care. And I needed those words about eight years ago when it was really, really hard with one of our kids. And I was feeling these feelings of kind of apathy. I was doing the parenting like tasks, but kind of without my heart. Like my heart was kind of like, peace out, I'm done here. And, um, and then of course I felt a lot of shame and guilt around that, you know, about what I had believed about unconditional love and how we had committed to these kids and how we went in, we thought with eyes wide open, we had a lot of trauma training. We were parent trainers before we adopted our last three kids. And uh, so I think it's really important to help families shed the feelings of shame and guilt around this and understand some of the brain science around it so that we can face it with real strategies. Because one of the things that happens when we have all this shame and guilt is our brains become very close-minded to strategies that might help. Um, And so we found that even just helping people understand what was going on in their brains helped them be more open to the things that do help us when we do run out of compassion. You know, I mentioned before we started recording, I'm part of a dad's group. And one of the things we've talked about a lot lately is that shaming guilt piece. Shaming guilt does such horrible things to us in the way that we, we see ourselves. And I, I can see that in my own life, you know, the way I was raised and, and how I grew up and some of the, some of my own personal filters I, I grew up with that shame comes in thick and heavy and it's really hard to, to process the world as what would you say, you know, from a perspective that's not clouded with a judgment of some other, some other thing that's telling you this is bad, regardless of what the rest of the world might look at and go, dude, you, I don't know how you're surviving, but I'm feeling like I'm failing miserably in those moments. So I think that's, that's the, uh, that's the part that really kind of got to me, you know, that, that we really need to figure out how to deal with that so that we're not stuck in that shame and guilt cycle and we can move forward and actually do something beneficial to help our kids and us build a relationship because that's at the end of the day, all we really have. Yeah. The ironic part of all of this is by this point, and this was maybe not the same 10 years ago, but more and more foster and adoptive families are starting to understand this idea of the impact of trauma. And we understand how it impacts our kids and their behaviors and their brains. And we talk a lot about shame Uh, for our kids and about how we parent and how we don't want to induce more shame, right? We want to come alongside them with compassion because we're starting to understand, right, that they, it's a can't, not a won't, right? It's a, might be a skill, not a will thing. It might be a trauma thing, right? That they're acting out of fear and self-protection. And those things look very big and scary sometimes. And so there's a lot of parenting uh, resources out there that help us right? Come alongside our kids and say, you're not bad. You know, your behavior is not acceptable, but you know, we understand we're on your side. We're here to help. Um, and so we have all this compassion for our kids and understand that they sometimes have attachment issues. And Dan Hughes, uh, coined a separate term for this called blocked trust, right? That kids who have trauma have trouble trusting 
in relationship because of their histories. And so we all seem to understand that part and we're starting to wrap our brains around that. The next step to that, which I think we haven't given ourselves grace for is, you know, we're, we have the same nervous system as our kids, right? In terms of like humanity, right? All humanity has a nervous system that's built to protect us. And so on the flip side of that, as we come into relationship with kids who have blocked trust and they're not reciprocating relationship in the ways that our nervous system wants and expects, then we have a self-protective mechanism as well that says, that doesn't feel really great. I'm not sure I want to keep doing this, right? And so that's the blocked care. But really, it's a, it's a kind of a parallel journey for parents um, for our kids' journey, right? Because broken relationships, our nervous system wants to protect us from those. And so we understand it for our kids, but then we don't uh, give ourselves the same kind of grace. Okay, you said something there that that really resonated with me. You know, we've got we've got kids of all ages, um, practically, and you know, when it comes to like say the teenagers, I I know how to sit and have a conversation with them and say, hey, look, you know, this is this is behavior that's unacceptable. Not you're bad, right? I, and I know how to have that conversation with them so that I'm not trying to. They don't feel like I'm trying to tell them you're horrible. I mean, they may still feel that way because they're teenagers and. I think all teenagers pick that up to some extent, but, but you can work with that. I have a five-year-old. Yeah, he's yes. five, a five-year-old who has recently picked that up. And I don't know if he picked it up from one of the older kids or if it's something, but he really genuinely, when he does something that he knows he's not supposed to. I'm a bad kid. That's what he'll tell me. Exactly. And that's a tough one for me. How do you, how do you have that conversation or, or help to, to cope with that thought process with a kid that young, because with the older kids, we can discuss some deep things. We can get break off into the, the heavier things. He's five. He doesn't have much room for, for depth there in that conversation. Yeah. I, it's a great question. Well, I think first it's important to understand that each child has a different relationship with shame and a lot of it has to do with our personalities. So even some basic understanding about the different lenses that different people kind of see the world in, I think can really be informative because there are some personalities that automatically go to shame pretty much every single time. And there's other personalities that are less likely to go there. And so if we know that our child has a personality that goes more easily to shame, um, I think there's a, certain type of radical acceptance, right? We don't, we don't want to not address it, right? But we also want to give ourselves space to know that there's nothing that we can do the side of heaven, right? To, to talk them out of this feeling of shame, right? We can give them tools and we can help them, but it's something that they'll kind of fight for lifelong. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We want to take a quick minute to step out and talk to you about support. We appreciate the support we've received from you guys. We really appreciate you listening to these episodes and sharing them with your friends and your family and on your social media and letting people know that we exist. If you find value in what we're doing, you can find it all at fosterCareNation.com to include links to our socials and contact information and a link to our Patreon account as well. The best support you could possibly give us is to help us out with growing this show by sharing it with others. But if you do have a dollar or two to spare, those small donations really help. So join all the other patrons 
at our Patreon page linked at fostercarenation.com and help support us to be able to buy all that chlorine I've been talking about. Because seriously guys, these kids, like they get in the pool and they don't get out. And I get nervous because they never get out. So thanks for your support. And we'll talk to you next week. Right, we can give them tools and we can help them, but it's something that they'll kind of fight for lifelong which I think takes some of the pressure off of us. I think the other thing is, you know, I talk a lot about the brain to parents that I serve and also to my kids and just about how the brain works and, you know, how the different skills that we need and the different ways that we can support it and how all brains are different and some brains need things more than others. And, and, some of the brain tasks that sometimes fail us to lead us to make decisions that get us in trouble or make us feel like we're bad people. And so I think even, you know, young school-aged kids can start to understand because they understand, you know, that our bodies, they understand some of the basic concrete things about the body. And so if we can start helping them understand the brain as the part of the body and how that impacts our behavior, then that gives them um, a, a foundation to work with, not just now, but into the future. Yeah. Cause that's a struggle that I think you're right. I think it might be something that we, we work with him for the, a good part of his, his life on. And I saw in your information somewhere and Amanda, feel free to check out cause she's not a nerd like me, <laughs> <laughs> but I saw that, that, that you are, um, you're highly skilled in the Enneagram. And that's one of those things that I find incredibly interesting because I sat down and took that test and was blown away by the accuracy of what I learned about me in that test. I am a hard five with a six wing. I mean, like a five, if they wrote the book about other people, I'd be surprised. I'm pretty certain it was just written about me. Yeah, the cool thing about the Enneagram, and not everyone has this experience. So I'll also preface this by saying some people can identify their dominant type very quickly and other people, it's really a journey. It took me actually a couple years to really nail down my dominant type. And I actually mistyped myself for quite a few years. Um, but a lot of people say exactly what you say and they have this experience where they start to dive in a little bit more. Maybe they, they read a book, um, something like The Road Back to You, which is, a, I think, a great primer. And they get to a chapter and they think, oh, they feel exposed. They think, gosh, like, how did these people know this about me? Um, or the other thing that I hear sometimes is the chapter that makes you want to throw the book across the room might also be your dominant type. <laughs> Ironically, since I'm a type five and emotions run low in us, I didn't really feel like throwing the book across the room. I just, I felt really odd that there's other people like me out there because I, I don't meet many people like that. And it was, it was just such an interesting thing. I think the part of the Enneagram that really blows me away is understanding some of the the proclivities that that I have that I, as I read it, I'm like, yep, yep, yep. He's talking about me here. My kids all have their own version of that. You know, that that's that's something that they're going to 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 develop and and learn to live inside of their own personalities. And the sooner I can kind of learn to understand how their personality works and how those pieces fit together, the more able I am to build that relationship deeper with them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to know that, you know, the Enneagram is definitely a personal journey. And so we never want to 
type our kids, especially in the sense where we're tempted to use it kind of like a sword where we're like, hey, you, you know, you're being very two right now. Um, but that being said, there are some educated guesses that we can make about maybe some of the numbers our kids are or aren't. We, and normally we can pare it down maybe to four, three or four numbers. Um, but there are some big buckets that we can probably notice about our kids, right? Are they more in the assert, what we call the assertive stance or withdrawing stance or dependent stance? And those types of things can really inform the questions that we ask, um, you know, how we notice how differently we might perceive a situ situation. Um, like, for example, you know, you as a five Jason are very much a, a head centered person. Like you said, like emotions aren't really your go-to thing. And depending on what Amanda might be, if she's also in the head center, maybe she like, say, let's pretend she was a seven, which is also a very head centered kind of um, loves the happy emotions would prefer to stay away from the sad emotions. And you guys kind of agree or uh, come together, converge at that point. And then you have this, you know, over emotional, four or nine or three or right, whatever, whoever, and, and you're watching them flip out about something and you're thinking, what is going on here? Why in the world? Why in the world would you behave that way? And then you have her on your other side going, yeah, I don't get it either. And so then the two, of, we have this tendency where the two of you are like, well, we must be right because we both agree. They must be in the wrong. We have to help them not do that anymore, right? Rather than understanding all these nine kind of colored glasses that we can see the world in and understanding what each of ours is and then how that makes us either um, more likely to engage and understand and empathize with our kids or if we're gonna have to do a little bit of work to put on their colored glasses. Yeah, I was smart enough to marry outside of my triad. <laughs> <laughs> She's deep in the heart side and I am deep in the head side. It's it's an interesting dichotomy for us to look at situations and it's we've been together for 20 years. It's taken us a long time to get to the place where we're at that now I know that when I don't see something, when I don't get it, Sometimes I just need to shut up and ask her and be like, hey, explain this to me, right? Mm -hmm. I have a daughter who ironically is not the most emotional one in my house. I have boys who, who really fit that category in a lot of places. And, and I understand so much more just, you know, and, and I get what you're saying. Yeah, I know that the book clearly states you're not allowed to type other people. But I, it gives me kind of some pieces to look at and go, okay, I can understand this kid a little bit better. Even if he's not what I think he is. The truth is, is I know they're not like me. You know, I know they don't have my type. If, if you know, and I have one kid who, who kind of has some tendencies, but not quite exactly. He's going to end up somewhere else, I'm certain. But it helps me to inform my decisions by going, hey, what I see here is not my first, the first thing I see. My knee-jerk reaction here is probably my inner a-hole coming out. I need to put that on hold. I need to put that in check and step back and try and understand this from their perspective. And that's what I think part of the power of the Enneagram is, is just learning about your own personality type one and two, truly understanding the depth of the different personality types that doesn't make them wrong, just different. And, and that's helped me a lot with a lot of our kids because, you know, we have six in the house right now and uh, I'd be hard pressed to believe that we had any less than five or six different personality types in the house. <laughs> well, and the thing is, is even within any of the numbers, um, you know, 
in some ways, it's a simple system, nine numbers around a nine-pointed star, right? In other ways, there's so much depth to it. There's multiple different triads to divide up those nine ways. And there's, um, if we gave a color to each of the nine types, like blue, for instance, there are a thousand shades of blue. And so not all nines, not all ones are going to look the same. There's, everyone's going to be their own flavor of that because the Enneagram is not everything, right? It's a tool. It's, it doesn't, uh, it isn't doesn't define who we are. It just is a tool for helping us understand ourselves better. Exactly, and, and that's what I love about it. So just that you know that that's I think the road back to you the, is the book you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, and it's by Ian Morgan Kahn and Suzanne Stabile. I'm glad you remember all that because if people want to learn more about it, that's the place to go. That's actually the book I learned about it from, and I know a few people who are who are fairly deep into that and just was able to get some real insight there. So. I think that's a, a really interesting thing to be able to to understand the differences between you and your kids there. So that that's a super interesting place. And the brain science stuff that you were talking about, that again, I, I'll nerd out with you on that all day long. I, I'm amazed by how much you can learn from the brain science with kids. Yeah, it's really helpful. I think, you know, as adoptive parents, especially, we spend a lot of time asking these big questions like, is it adoption? Is it just normal kid behavior? Is it, you know, a myriad of one of the diagnoses that a lot of our kids ends up with, you know, FASD, RAD, ADHD, uh, ODD, all the things. And we can get caught up in, well, do we need to know a diagnosis in order to know how to deal with it? And the good news is, is not necessarily because if we just take it all the way down to the brain tasks, uh, the diagnosis is of course helpful for services and funding and all of those things, but I don't think it's fully necessary to understand how to tackle a behavior. It helps me to understand because I grew up in, in a very black and white world. If you weren't doing this, you know, there, there was a reason for it and you were bad for, for whatever it was, but it's a very black and white world. And it's helped me to, as a father, be able to become much more nuanced in the way that I handle situations and not let my initial reaction you know, become my, my choice of response that I give. So it kind of creates some space there for me to, to take the time to choose to be a better dad, to choose yeah. to reach for that thing that they need. You know, when a kid's screaming, sometimes it's just because they're kids and they want your attention because they're kids. Sometimes it's because they're dealing with a trauma and we've seen some pretty deep traumas in the kids we've had come through our house. You know, um, I don't know how much you've dealt with the foster care system, but I, I would assume you, you know at least this much that most kids there deal with some traumas and it's not their fault. Well, and we know that even changing primary caregivers is traumatic, that that change in attachment is really hard on kids, hard on adults. So, you know, regardless of why a child comes into care and they never come into care for great reasons, right? So, uh, that there's that automatically, but just even that change, we know by default, all kids who have come to families through foster care or adoption have at least that one trauma of, a, of changing primary caregivers. Yeah. And that attachment piece is important as well. I know now you have, um, you have a kid who has, uh, some attachment disorders. Is that correct? We do. A couple of our kids really struggle kind of, I, I think attachment's really a, a spectrum, but uh, one in particular has a pretty solid uh, reactive attachment dis, reactive attachment disorder diagnosis. There's a lot of words there. And, um, and that can be really scary. Um, and we did not probably know enough about what that would mean for our family going into that. Um, but it really contributed to, you know, take 
coming full circle to our experience of having blocked care um, and being in this kind of chronic stress environment and not really understanding the impact it was having on our nervous systems. We had a, a kid who stayed with us for a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. He was, they were, him and his sister were here for a year and a half. And at three, I believe he was a diagnosed reactive attachment disorder. So that, that was kind of a, a, an interesting thing. We found out later that that's a, the youngest they will actually diagnose that. But because of the level of trauma he'd been through, it was one of the worst cases of abuse he'd seen in our area in a lot of years. And it was super, super scary when you read up on it. But the thing was, is at the end of it, we worked through a whole lot of those things with him. And he became a kid who was really, really very, you know, very kind and caring. And he had healthy attachment in the end. But I think partly too, because we've caught it at such a young age, you know, it was not something that, that was allowed to fester for so long. It was kind of caught at a young age, but those attachment disorders are really interesting in what they can cause. And, you know, well, I say interesting, which in, in the nerds world, it means I'm like, wow, look at this. This is so interesting. It comes from here. But the truth is, is it's terrifying for the kid. Yeah. It's terrifying for the child. It's terrifying for the adult. And, and I think I wish I had known more again, how my personality would have taken rejection um, I would have recognized the toll it was taking on our family a lot earlier. Um, and I think we defined success as we could kind of do this on our own. I think maybe because we were parent trainers or, or whatever, or just cultural things, that there were certain levels of support that we ended up needing that I thought meant we were failures. Um, and that looked like, you know, hospitalizations and out-of-home treatment and things like that. Um, and because we believe so much in therapeutic parenting and, you know, as Dr. Purvis was famous for saying, what is broken in relationship heals in relationship. Um, you know, we took it upon ourselves, I think, to be her source of healing for a lot of years. And I, I think we play a big part as families. So I don't want to undermine that at all, but it also takes a lot of support along the way. You know, that's one thing that we were not really well versed in when we first started into foster care. We, we kind of walked in, you know, they tell you that when you're doing your training that you're going to feel like all these kids really need is love. And you're going to feel that really strongly and you're wrong. They need more than that, <laughs> you know, and part of what they need is going to be things you can't give them. And, you know, here's where we, we're going to do some counseling. We're going to do some different therapies. We're going to do some different things. And these are all important part pieces of it. But I think we all walk in there thinking, yeah, but you don't know how good we are. We'll be good with this. And, and the truth is, is that you do need that training. You do need that knowledge. You do need some of that help from other people and building that community of, of helpers around you so that you can do the best possible thing for a kid who's been through some sort of trauma in their life, you know, and um, we talked just uh, a little while back um, with a guy, he's a nationally syndicated morning show host, uh, Barry Farmer. And he talked a lot about, you know, the transracial piece alone, you know, mm. he's a black man who has adopted three white boys. And so, you know, they get some, some, some attention. Um, they were actually featured on love what matters. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah. Okay. So if you see, because he, he's a big guy with like long, long hair down to his, to his oh, waist, yes. 
And, uh, you know, and, and so then he's got these, these three white kids with him. And the story was kind of, he, I think he said he actually had a chance to write that story or have some input into it. But, you know, he, he talks about, you know, that, that piece of the importance of the transracial side, because I mean, let's be honest, we all want to talk about how, you know, we don't see color, you know, that's kind of been the buzz thing over the last few years. The truth is, is that it's a part of who we are. And, and we've learned not to try and be colorblind, but more color aware. Like, hey, I have kids that are mixed. I have white kids, very, very white kids. You know, I am, you know, if I made you guess what my race was, you'd probably have a struggle because everybody does. And it depends on the, the, the accent that I use in the moment because I can, I can go lots of different ways. And that's something for every kid to come out of that, that thing that's their normal. This is part of my identity. And then step into a different house, whether it's through foster care or whether it's through adoption. If, if that's, that's a big piece of identity and that might change as, you know, with the ideas of, of the transracial adoption that I've heard people talk horrible about it and say, it's a horrible idea. It should never happen. And I've heard people talk about how it can be so wonderful and good. And I think if we learn how to do that piece, right, we can really avoid some of that trauma, maybe not all of it, but some of it and help these kids get through a, a hard place in life and just, just get to a place where they have a normal, a normal self image that's healthy for them. Yeah, it's it's an issue with so many nuances, and we're a multiracial family. I'm Korean. I have two siblings who are Korean, but we're not biologically related. Um, my sister is married to a black guy. I'm married to a white guy. We have Korean kids. We have mixed kids. We have black kids, and my parents are both Caucasian. So you know, we've, we've got a little bit of everything and, and we actually all at one point in time lived in the same house together. And we also, um, have a, we'll call him a bonus kid. He was a young man who aged out of Baltimore city's foster care system and, you know, six foot four black man. And the ways that we are all treated by the world are all very different. And so we can't afford to be colorblind. Uh, you know, I've, I think the nuance in whether or not we should or shouldn't be promoting transracial adoption is again, exactly that nuance. And I don't know that there's a right or a wrong, but there's definitely best practices for how to do that. Um, I feel very fortunate that our family is transracial because I think, you know, living so closely with people of different colors really forces you to not be able to put your head in the sand or make assumptions and have in inner false stories about people's experiences. Um, so I think there is something beautiful, you know, our big black son, you know, has taught us a lot of things um, and we've been able to share a lot of things. And I feel like some of the best healing across racial lines does happen in relationship. And of course, family is some of the closest relationship we can be in. Um, so I don't want to minimize the experience of transracial adoptees who have not had that done well. Um, Cause I think that's something to consider as well, but I think there's a lot of, of beauty and there, there are silver linings to what transracial adoption has brought to the world. Oh, absolutely. And, and in this world, you know, when we're recording this, we're in the moment of the uh, George Floyd incident and, you know, towns are on fire and people protesting all over the place. And 
I, I think it's a perfect moment to sit back and take a moment to just at least recognize the fact that we are all different. And it's something that if we can kind of come together, you know, I have a white woman beside me. We're having a Korean woman here talking with us. I'm a ambiguously brown guy and just have a conversation around the fact that, hey, we're all different and it's okay. And, you know, this is not a problem that we, we need to cause a problem out of, but we can we can find beauty in these oddball, you know, mismatched relationships. You can find a lot of beauty there. And even in the families, because like I mentioned, our family is, is, we're not color matched, you know. Whoever, whoever developed the, the negatives into the film of our family did not do a good job of getting us all the same, the same color. And that's okay because, man, we just had, we, we're a family. I have a, my youngest boy is what I, I call painfully white. Like this, this boy has to have sunscreen to think about going outside. <laughs> and then the next oldest one, yeah, he, he's five. And then our six-year-old little boy, he's mixed. And he, he's a, a darker skin tone as, as far as mixed kids go. And the two of them will walk around with their arms around each other's shoulder and tell you they're brothers. They'll also beat the crap out of each other because they're brothers. But, you know, they're, they're so connected. And it's amazing to see how two human beings who are not biologically related can come in and build such a loving, caring relationship in that place when they don't have that hate in their heart. Yeah. yeah. And, and, as, and as they grow older and as they each have different experiences in the world, they'll be able to share those with each other. And, you know, and your white son will be able to hopefully hear it from your mixed son because they started with relationship first. And so they'll be able to validate each other's experiences. Um, and I think that's really important as well. Absolutely. Because he hears it from me as well, because where you know, depends on where I'm at and who I'm around as to what people assume. But, you know, I have had the, uh, the experience of having been called almost every racial slur you've ever heard. You know, I've been told to go back to my own country a time or two. And, you know, that was moments after I got out of the military. I was, I hadn't been in the military for a year at that point. And I'm still young and full of, you know, full of testosterone and, and, and pride and ego. And this, this old guy, I mean, he, he got me, he got me worked up that day because I was blown away that somebody would have the gall to look at me and tell me to go back to my own country. And, you know, years later, I look back on it and realize, yeah, I was, I was an aggravated young man at that moment, but truthfully speaking that that's just a lens that people see you through sometimes and this is a world that has some people who are willing to be hateful and we can choose to either return that with hate like i was intending on doing that day thank god he had the sense to leave or you know we can choose to return that with kindness and just show people that their assumptions about us are wrong and and we can we can connect in a way that's that builds relationship instead of connecting in a way that that causes problems yeah, I use the word curiosity a lot when I'm working with parents um, about behaviors, but I think it serves us well in this conversation as well um, to be more curious than we are, um, you know, opinionated. <laughs> you say that like it's easy. We all definitely have our opinions. <laughs> um, I Well, I say it as a seven with a very strong eight wing, and so... I am not a stranger to opinions. And so uh, I use curiosity uh, as a practice for myself. You know, I'm preaching to myself as well as to the the folks that I serve. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that, that's a good point. You know, it's, it's that, that curiosity is the one place where we can grow together. Yeah, 
I think it keeps, it keeps our nervous systems open going back to the brain thing. You know, there's a lot of the, the brain science shows that there are certain things that automatically close up our nervous systems and there's other things that keep us open. And I think we would do well to understand what each of those are and, and how they play roles because we will do our best work parenting and as humans uh, with open nervous systems for ourselves and for the people that we're interacting with. And I think that's true with, you know, whether your kids are adopted or foster kids or biological kids, you know, across the board, that's, that's gotta be a hundred percent true. Yeah. I mean, and even in our friendships and our marriages, right? I think the stories that we tell ourselves, if we convince ourselves that they're true and we close the door on curiosity, I think those are the, the long, the longer, harder battles that we fight. Absolutely. You know, we, we don't have those problems anymore, me and Amanda, because, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was coming up with a good answer, <laughs> you know, and that's the thing we've been married, you know, we've been together for 20 years and we still have those moments where we make wrong assumptions. Are we surprised that we do it with our kids, with, with the people around us? You know, but the danger is that, that when we do that with our kids, that takes away our ability to connect with our kids and damages that relationship to some level. And if you keep that going, you're going to eventually run out of a relationship and not have any ability to really influence this kid in the long term. Yeah, we've been there actually. We 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 ran that runway out with a couple of our kids um, in a really stressful situation, and it's it's pretty sobering. And we're fortunate to have like the ultimate redo, if you will. Uh, but that experience really is what uh, was the impetus for a lot of change in how we saw success, how we which hills we died on, how we parented. And that was years after becoming Empowered to Connect Parent Trainers. So, that I, you know, it's such a, such a process, such a journey. Um, and I'm sure we have many more lessons to continue to learn. And we have quite a few years left in, in the parenting journey as well. <laughs> well yeah, because as soon as you think you've got it all figured out, they hit you with something else. Yeah, and just when we thought we were finished with the little ones, uh, we had a daughter move home with a grandchild. So we're like back in the throes of, I'm getting to, re uh get my redo with like little people so all those parenting skills that i've learned over the years now i can try them out with a fresh new slate (laughs) there you go that's what i tell my oldest son oftentimes is you're kind of like a science experiment we we didn't know what we were doing we walked in and made some hypotheses and most of them were wrong but by the time our youngest get to be your age they're gonna have the best parents ever y'all gave us a lot of great experience yeah (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he appreciates it as much as I do, but <laughs> but it's true, you know, as we get older. Now, you mentioned the Empowered to Connect thing uh, a moment ago, and I know that uh, we, we've had that recommended to us as a resource to, to look into, but I don't think they came, I don't know if they're going to do it here in, in our area this year because, well, because of the pandemic, pandemic. stuff, um, but that's something that I've, I've heard talked about and heard it raved about as being such a powerful thing for parents. Um, what can you tell us about Empowered to Connect? Well, Empowered to Connect is a parent resource that came out of a professional model that is called Trust-Based Relational Intervention. And so you'll often hear it called TBRI. And it was uh, the brainchild of this fantastically intuitive, compassionate woman, uh, Dr. Karen Purvis. And she was a foster mother and raised her kids and she also had two boys by birth and got into her fifties and, you know, had an empty nest and went back to school and got her PhD in 
psychology and brain science and all of these things, but she was so intuitive for what she knew to be healing for these kids that she had fostered. And so uh, her team at Texas Christian University followed her around for a couple of years and watched her interact with kids and watched her do what she did intuitively and helped tease out from a brain science perspective what was really going on. And so uh, over probably over a decade or almost a decade now, she wrote uh, co-wrote the book with Dr. David Cross called The Connected Child, and it's become kind of a mainstay in the adoption world. Um, she also was 90% finished a sequel to that book called The Connected Parent um, with my friend and co-host Lisa Qualls. And so The Connected Parent comes out in July, um, and that is her last written work. And it was something that most of the world didn't know was even in the works when she passed from cancer about four years ago. Um, so that's really exciting. Um, but from a training perspective, I've taken what I have learned through Empowered to Connect. And basically, you know, the premise of that is that, again, our kids aren't bad, that they've had trauma that changes their brain, their behaviors show needs, you know, what is broken in relationship heals in relationship. Um, so we've taken that and, and a lot of other brain training um, from Dan Hughes and Dan Siegel and uh, Mona Delahook and and Stephen Porges and kind of everything I could get my hands on. I kind of joke with people that like I read every book and I went to every conference so that parents don't have to, right? So if you're kind of feeling like you're drowning in challenging behaviors and you kind of need the the uh, you know connected parenting for dummies or not dummies but connected parenting for really tired, exhausted parents. Um, you know, I work with families uh, in a parenting course and, and through private coaching to take kind of all of that knowledge and distill it down to what their families specifically need. Um, and it's been transformative for our family and for a lot of other families. Um, you know, basically I created what I wish someone had had for us about six years ago because we went to all the professionals and we went to all the conferences and the books. And um, there's a gap between theory and practice almost always, I, I find. And I think the other part is not, it, it's kind of this mecca, right, to find the resources that are trauma-informed and adoption-informed you know, and aren't too high structure or too high nurture. Um, and so we, you know, we could tick off one or two of those boxes with different resources that we found, but they were usually missing a piece or understanding for what was going on with our child. And um, so I tried to bring it all together with as many different brain science resources as I could get my hands on. Um, things like listening therapy that, um, you know, reshapes the nervous system and essential oils for balancing brain chemistry and, you know, the Enneagram for understanding the psychology. I mean, just as much as I could possibly get in to be practical for parents um, is what I just love doing and helping, helping parents kind of know exactly what's going to work for their family. I was told that the Empowered to Connect thing was, was an important place, but it sounds like you've really gotten a lot of, a lot of resources out of that. Uh, so you do you do personal like one on one coaching with parents? I do. So I work with families um, over Voxer. So I used to do Zoom sessions, and uh, the thing is, is you know we're still in the midst of busy parenting with kids with really high needs, and uh, it's hard for 
it can be hard for me sometimes to get in front of Zoom for an hour. And it was really hard for the parents I was serving to get in front of Zoom for an hour. So I use an app called Boxer. It's like a walkie talkie and texting app that allows folks to just have access to me. And I have a 21 day parenting course that um, walks people step by step through this, the knowledge part of this. And um, it's delivered to their email inboxes, like five to 12 minutes a day in short bite-sized pieces. Because the other part is like the conferences and all of that are really great, but you need to find, you know, two days, two eight-hour days to get away and kind of download all the information. And so, um, so it's short bite-sized pieces. And I found that works really well for families. And so they have the option um, to either do that as a self-paced thing or do it along with me in a private coaching environment. That's great. Um, how do people get a hold of you for that? Because I, I think there's a lot of parents out there that could really use that that little extra push of some help when especially they don't, we're, we're in a world of a pandemic world where we don't have a whole lot of people we can reach out to right now. Yeah, that's a great question. So my website is the corkboardonline.com, kind of all one word, uh, all spelled out. And from there, you can uh, connect with me grab some free resources, schedule an initial consultation, um, connect to the Adoption Connection and the podcasts and resources we have there. So it's kind of like the hub for all the things. And if you land there, then it's, I, hopefully, I've made it really easy for you to connect to the resources that will be the best fit for your family. Great. Do you do much social media stuff? I do. Mostly, I love hanging out in my Facebook group. Facebook groups, I find, are really great places to connect with folks. So, um, there is a link to my Facebook group at my website, or if you just put Facebook at the end of the website, so the corkboardonline.com slash Facebook, then they'll, uh, get dropped into the group there. So many parents need some help in this. You know, we, we, we stumbled across a lot of these struggles and we worked our way through a lot of them the hard way. And yeah, trial and error. I, I would just, <laughs> a lot of error. me too. Still doing it. Yeah. Still doing the error. A lot of the things that I'm putting out on social media are my um, learning journeys as they are unfolding in real time. <laughs> but you know, I, I think as parents, we need to we need to hear that. We need to know that we're not the only ones out there failing. You know, because when we do fail, when we fail our children, it's a it's a pretty crappy feeling. <laughs> you know, and no parent really wants to admit that. Hey, I, I'm failing. And so we don't reach out, we keep it to ourselves and we bottle it up and then there's more shame and it's kind of a never ending cycle. And so if you've got somebody out there who's putting it out there, you know, you don't feel so bad and so alone. Yeah, absolutely. And what I find when I work with parents, cause it's funny, not funny, ironic, interesting, uh, that a lot of parents come to me and say those exact words, Amanda, that they feel like they're failing. And a lot of times what I find is that their definition of success is just a little bit off and that they're defining success by something that is almost unattainable. Like if we just define our success by the way that our kids are behaving, we are not setting ourselves up for success because ultimately we do not control what they do. I mean, we can provide loving, caring environments. You know, we could do everything right and our kids could still be impulsive or make poor decisions. And so I actually have a free training on my website um, and I've created a special page for your folks and I call it the Parent Success Plan. And it's a short, like 25 minute training on and a worksheet on how to redefine success for your family because that's the first thing that I do when I work with parents is to get that down because that gives us a really great working point for how to move forward. Um, 
and help parents feel like they do have the tools because a lot of the parents that come to me have been to a lot of conferences. They have read a lot of books and they just need help closing the small gap and they are not nearly the failures that they seem to think they are or that they've painted themselves into the corner for. Absolutely. And I find so often we, we compare ourselves to other parents and, you know, that's, you know, their kids are their kids and mine are mine and, you know, they're completely different kids. So they're different situations and to compare them as apples to oranges, they're not going to be the same, you know, so what is successful for one parent is not going to be successful for me because my kids are different. And to, you know, to put myself up with all the other mothers, I'm, I always feel like I'm falling short. Yeah. We do have a lot of trauma in our house with our children, you know, and not every family has that. And so for me to compare my kids to my friend's kids, it's just, it's not the same. Well, and I'm going to let you in a little secret. If you look at our social media, it doesn't always show the bad days. I think other people might be doing the same thing. They might just be showing us the highlights and we're, we're comparing our, the crap yeah. we hide to their highlights. And it's, it's kind of easy to feel like you're not doing so well when you stare at somebody else's highlight reel. Yeah. The mom who's, who's yeah. perfectly, her makeup's done, her hair's clean, all her, you know, her children look immaculate and the house is nice. Well, man, that's just not going to happen in my world. There's too many of them and only one of me. Yeah. If you look on our website, on the front of our website, I have <laughs> a picture of my two youngest boys sitting on the front porch of our house. Just adorable pictures. I'm going to tell you, I took about 400 pictures. That yeah. <laughs> and we specifically dressed them that way. You know, it was, it was like a little mini photo shoot that that's not our reality. I mean, that was our reality at the moment, but that's not everyday life, you know, and everyday life gets messy. Yeah. Well, and your listeners can't see us obviously because it's a podcast, but we're recording with video and so behind me is this really sweet whitewashed like plank wall. But let me tell you, it's, um, it's fabric to backdrop and it's hiding a disaster of a bedroom behind me. (laughs) I was wondering, it looked like one of the zoom backgrounds. I was thinking that one looks like it does a really good job of staying in place because some of the zoom backgrounds kind of flicker in and out, but I see what you're saying. It's, it's actually fabric. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like the best $40 I've ever spent, but, um, but yeah, it can be misleading, right? If you see me on video a lot or on my YouTube channel or Facebook group and chatting and it looks, you know, so neat and tidy, but let me tell you, it is not a, a fantastic representation of, you know, my life. <laughs> we all hide from that vulnerability in our life in all kinds of places. And I think we could probably dive off into a whole, a whole podcast about being vulnerable and, and letting people see the, the dirty pieces of our life and just being open and honest and vulnerable. But as we do that to ourselves and we are constantly comparing, we kind of beat ourselves up a lot. And I know that earlier you said something about finding some practical steps to regaining compassion for yourself and for your kids. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah. So Dan Hughes tells us that the best thing we can do is remember to nurture ourselves. You know, we're pouring ourselves out, nurturing our kids. And in a lot of cases, it's not being reciprocated back, right? They're, they're not super grateful. In fact, they may be downright nasty to us in their own self-protection, fear and hurt and shame. And so we need people pouring into us. 
um, and nurturing us. And that is the number one way that we can then regain compassion for both ourselves and our kids. We need people to cheer us on and say, you're a great parent doing great work. Um, so there's also a program that the Adoption Connection does. Um, it's a 30-day challenge and it it's, again, gives people one tangible item for 30 days to do that is specifically designed to help them walk out of blocked care um, and gives them the tools that they need to continue that because it's unfortunately it's not a one and done 30 days especially if you're continuing to live in a house with a child who is really challenging uh, but it gives people a really great starting point and then you know you can reuse uh, those 30 tools again and again um, to keep keep your heart in the game really yeah, I think I'm going to write that down. That might be the name of this episode, learning to keep your heart in the game. <laughs> because that's that that's really the struggle that we face sometimes. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's one of the things that I think probably all parents, but especially adoptive and foster parents deal with a lot because there's some of that compassion fatigue that sneaks in there. And, and if you're a good parent, you're just going to automatically be a good parent and you should just be that way and you don't have to work at it, right? We forget yeah, to work out. That would be nice. <laughs> well, and I mean, especially right now, you know, our children have all these traumas and, you know, they keep hearing from people and in the news, unprecedented times, pandemic, you know, and that scares our kids, especially kids that come from uncertainty. You know, they're like, what's going on? Why do I have to stay home? Why can't I go to school? You know, everything is changing in their world. And so I know for our house, you know, it's created a little bit of an upheaval. You know, kids are kind of scared. They're all over the place. They're re-experiencing, you know, their traumas and triggers. And it's just, it's really a crazy time. And it's as stressful as it is for us as parents and being essential workers, as they tell me I am, um, you know, it's just as hard for my children. Yeah, absolutely. And all of our nervous systems are taking cues, nonverbal cues from each other at a rate of uh, for every 50 extrinsic uh, interactions we have. So those are like the concrete ones that we see, you know, the highs, the goodbyes, the it's okays, the hugs, all of that. There's uh, 11 billion uh, nonverbal bits of communication that are happening between nervous systems. So whether it's our kids freaking out, and so their nervous systems impacting our nervous system, or if it's just residual stress we feel as parents because we're shouldering a lot of this for our kids, um, they're feeling that too. And so I think that's important to just recognize that we're kind of all in this soup of neurochemistry together. <laughs> I like that. I like that. A soup of neurochemistry. But, you, you know, I've learned some things recently that I was reading a book. It's um, Joe Navarro. I think he he taught the... Um, the body language course at Quantico for the FBI and read through his book. It's called the power of body language. And it's Mm -hmm. amazing how much we think we're not saying, but we're screaming out loud that our kids are reading and we don't know they hear us. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's terrifying and empowering all at the same time. Exactly. There's a reason why, you know, my dad used to tell a story when, when his mom would look at him, they, they, you know, they, they'd act a fool because they were young boys. And, and he said, you know, we just keep giving her trouble, whatever, doing what we wanted until her left eyebrow went up, which apparently is a family trait because mine does that and it goes up really high. And my kids know when that eyebrow raises, that means dad's about to get real serious. 
So if I want the kids to listen, I just have to raise an eyebrow and I don't have to change my tone of voice. I don't have to say anything specific. It's that one little thing that, that they can read and they know that this means a whole different set of rules are in effect right now. Dad's not playing anymore. Yeah. My five-year-old taught me a lesson. Well, he's six now, but it was last year one day and he came in and I was talking to him about something he was upset about and he breaks into tears. And I'm like, what's going on, dude? Like, what's wrong? And, and because as an Enneagram type five, like this is my normal face. This is my angry face. This is my thinking face, you know, right? And, and I, I don't show a lot of emotion in my face. And, and I was asking him a question and, you know, my brow furrows just slightly, you know, right in the middle, I get a little bit of a wrinkle when I'm thinking. And, and he goes, you're mad at me. I said, well, I'm not mad at you, but yeah, you are. Your face does this. And he scrunches up his eyebrows. He says, that's what you do when you're mad. And I'm like, oh man, I, I, I was sitting there thinking through it. I wasn't angry at all. But that's what he was perceiving from me. And it's, a, you know, just that piece about how much our stress comes across the things that we don't think we're saying, the, the, the anger that they, that they perceive, all the, the disapproval that they feel, the I'm not good enough. How much of that comes out of things that we never said and maybe didn't even mean to, to imply, but they pick up these little body language pieces. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's incredible. Um, and good for him for being able to verbalize that to you because a lot of times our kids don't get to verbalize it. They just feel it in their souls and they're hypervigilant about it. And they react to us like we're a threat, like, like we really are angry. And so all of a sudden we find ourselves in the midst of this storm of emotions and we're not even sure what set it off. Yeah. And I mean, they actually had to go chase down a, a couple storms of emotion running around in the other room we could hear at the moment so i'll break off into the brain with you a little bit there and and just that's a piece that i've learned it's that amygdala that little bitty thing back there in the back of your head that when it spikes and i can watch kids i'm learning now to kind of start to recognize that that behavior that seems to be amygdala fired when, when they hit that fight or flight when they go from zero to a hundred because that piece of the brain reacts so quickly and I know that at that point, I'm not dealing with a behavior with, with a kid with just choosing poor behavior. Sometimes I'm I'm reacting to a trauma that's controlling the behavior, and my first initial thing has to be to slow them down, bring them down, yeah. warm my voice, slow it down, say, "Come here, bud, have us have a talk," and then bring that to a, to a calm place before we can even talk about any of the other stuff. But that's taken years. Again, my 22 year old son, he didn't get that from dad. I know. <laughs> it's really a shame, isn't it? If, if only we had known what we didn't know. Exactly, exactly. But it's it's funny because as you talk about the Karen Purvis and the TBRI stuff, that's one of the pieces that he and I have talked about a lot. And and he gets frustrated sometimes. It's like, Dad, like you never would have put up with this crap when we were kids. You you you'd have you'd have been all over us for this. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but but I see it differently now. I understand things differently now. It's like, no, you just, you're just too easy on them. You just, you just let them get away with, with whatever they want. And it's, it's so hard sometimes for people who don't understand it to see it any other way other than letting a kid get away. And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand, man. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing too when you were a kid, but, but I was wrong. And trust yeah. me, that's, that's a hard, those are hard words to spit out of my mouth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get that. What works for one kid doesn't work for the other five in the house. You know, I think there's almost a different set of playing cards for each of our children because they've all come from different places, different walks of life, different diagnoses, you know, being born addicted. You know, we have to, we have to meet our children where they're at. 
and they're all in different places. One's over here in Florida, one's, you know, all the way across the board in California. You know, they're just, they're, they're different, different little humans. Yeah, I think, and, and I think that's the really beautiful thing of kind of this brain-based parenting is the tools that we use, the specific ways that we respond definitely are different from child to child, but the process and the framework for how we figure out what that response is going to be can be the same across the board. And that's really helpful because we've had people say to us, you know, how do you keep it straight? How do your kids feel about, you know, parenting one way versus another? And we're honest with them. Now everyone is parented the same way in the sense where our perspective's different. We know we traditional parenting worked for two of our kids who came to us by birth and were pretty neurotypical and it probably would still work for them. But we really think that this way of figuring out what behaviors are telling us about what's going on with them is really better for everyone. And so we have, we use this, you know, quote unquote therapeutic model now for everyone, even if they don't seem to need it. Cause I just think it's really good relationship. It, it gives everyone really good relationship tools that they're going to hopefully take with them into their relationships, moving forward, work and spouses and children and all those good things. Well, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, we've, we've been fostering for several years now. Um, but we have found that as our children get older, the older ones they've expressed, you know, they would like to have biological children, but they would also like to foster and maybe adopt. And, you know, so if we can kind of give them a a leg up, so to speak, before they get there in the trenches, you know, that would be an awesome thing because I know Jason talked about our one little guy that we had for a year and a half that had rad. We had never experienced that before. And I mean, we were just thrown into those waters, even though we went through our training to be foster parents they did not prepare us for that, you know, and we had to, you know, it was a quick learning curve. We had to, you know, quickly try to find papers and research and, you know, just figure it out. And now, you know, there's a lot more resources out there than what there were 10 years ago, you know, so that's really awesome. And it's great that people are looking for these things. People are working towards it, creating programs because the information just, wasn't as available as it is now. Yeah, we had kind of a sink or swim experience for sure. Yeah, I can I can relate to that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you can. Yeah, we we just kind of did the um, was it Dory model of behavior? Yeah, just keep swimming. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> as long as you can keep your head high enough to get a breath, just keep going. And, I was going to say that's where Dory had us. Is she can breathe underwater? We couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and drowning families don't make noise, right? So a lot of times um, silence feels like we, you know, people from the outside think that we don't need help because we're not waving our arms and yelling, you know, over here, over here, you know, we need someone to do our laundry. We need someone to help care for other kids, right? We're just kind of silently dying and sinking. Yeah. Yes. And we, I think some of us have been there for sure, you know, and, and so for the people who are listening, um, you know, that's a lot of great advice there. You're right on the button with what the needs are in this world, because we're, we're all, all of us are struggling in one way or another, but some of, some of us are struggling through some harder things and really, really need a place to reach out to. So, um, I know I asked you once before, you know, you had your website. Is there any other way for people to really reach you? Or is that just the the central location where you have everything at? 
Yeah, that's a central location. So whether you want to shoot me an email, uh, my phone number might even be on there. Uh, and then, you know, for your folks, if they're interested in exploring this idea of defining success a little bit more with me, um, that I want to offer them an opportunity to do that for free. And they can do that at the corkboardonline.com slash unparalleled journey. Okay. I think that's, um, that, that's, you know, if you see a Jason or Amanda pop in there, that don't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> because I hope you guys do. Yeah, we, we can use every resource we can get our hands on because like I said before, we have seven kids and one of them, um, let's see, Arissa would have been 24 this Four. year. Yes. Um, and then our oldest son is 23. And then we have a 19 year old in the house and a 14 and a 12 and, and six, six and five and a four year old all in the house <laughs> right now. And of those, you know, we only have biology to, to a couple of them. So all those different stories in the background, there, there's so, so many moving parts. It's, it's a challenge to keep that straight. And so having some, some real definition of what success really looks like, I think, is, is helpful for all of us to be able to keep our eyes on a prize that's actually winnable. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, thank you for your time today, Melissa. We really appreciate your knowledge that you brought to us and, and, uh, and some resources. And I think this is going to be real helpful for a lot of people. I well, I appreciate for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate the work you guys are doing, and uh, thanks for inviting me and for the great conversation. Anytime. Thank you very much.